0: Mr. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm well, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I've been hostess with the mostess uh, recently. Just had some folks uh, come back from a two week safari in South Africa. Sounds absolutely delightful. Um, but um, yeah, here, here we are. I'm back to work, I'm afraid.
1: Um, what about yourself? Yeah, all good, all good. A lot going on in the sector at the moment. Can't wait for this week's show. So It really feels like things are about to take off in uranium. So good for your friends who had their two weeks, good timing. They're probably doing the same thing as most fuel buyers at the moment who are off on vacation, getting the last days of rest before what is probably and most likely going to be a very, very busy period launching from September.
0: It, it, feels, like, it feels like actually, because and, and I kind of know this because I think I've talked about it with you in the past, where when you start getting communicated to by the, the kind of big brokers who want you to kind of lay out a big chunk of change on you know various projects I like guess they're sa- sounding us out um, you know they're going to be pushing it big um, like you know receiving lots of emails from people like Sprott write- writing and uh, talking about uranium um, I- again that's a, that's a good indicator uh, and I guess for you you're going to hear about it at the WNA uh, conference the beginning of September as well you'll, you'll get a sense of it then too will you?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting to see the Sprott marketing machine firing up again. Uh, That's a forward indicator if I've ever seen one. The ETFs are starting to be capitalised and we are seeing the spot price ticking up. It's pushed through $57 without any help whatsoever from physical funds. And the utilities when they do come back from their vacations and reassemble in London at the beginning of September, that's a critical juncture in this sector. That is when everyone recalibrates, they swap ideas, they gauge both suppliers and, um, you know, the consumption and the demand aspect the world nuclear association will release its nuclear fuel report. And also a lot of companies save that moment up for important announcements. And there's so much happening in the sector, so much happening in SMR, so much happening on the demand side, so many positive developments in a policy setting sense that I think it's going to be a really busy conference. You might remember, Matt, we talked about the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle Conference in April in the Netherlands, in The Hague. And if that type of atmosphere and level of a positive optimism is anything to go by. I think it's going to be an absolute buzz in London at the World Nuclear Association Symposium.
0: Feels like it, feels like it for sure. But okay, so much has changed, um, you know, e- even since The Hague, so much has changed since WNA last year. Um, we are seeing a whole bunch, like you said, you mentioned a few of those catalysts uh, going on there, but I, I've got to talk about, I've got to bring it back to um, one of those catalysts. So I'll ask you the question what's been happening, but But I think I know um, where you're going to go first.
1: Well, let's let's uh, do a quick skirt back to Niger, because that's still one of the most uh, newsworthy subjects in this sector at the moment. Uh, There hasn't been anything dramatic that's happened since we last talked, although I think you'd be hard pressed to say that the coup has not succeeded. In other words, you'd have to concede that this is a successful coup. Those first few days, the golden hours of resolving or stopping a coup uh, went, came and went. And now we've got various saber rattling, including by Putin, also ECOWAS and others. But it just seems to be a lot of intent and no action at the moment. So it's looking like the Military rulers are settling in, they've appointed a new round of governors, they've done a round of arresting existing ministers and all of that stuff that happens with a coup. And interestingly, in the last couple of days, they've raised they've raised the stakes by uh, accusing the incumbent democratically elected president Bazoom of high treason. Now, who knows? And I suspect he isn't guilty of high treason, but what that does is that makes him a more interesting and useful negotiating pawn. And there, that starts to look to me like that's the circuit breaker that will see the military junta retain control here into the medium term. Seems like the... What will happen is uh, ECOWAS will be looking for a circuit breaker to be able to step down from their military posturing, their invasion posturing, and the release of uh, the previously elected president into some form of exile um, is often how the playbook runs in this area. So watch this space. Uh, unfortunately, it's not looking good for development projects, either near-term or some of the long-term development projects that Arano have. Um, no clear indications on whether there will be disruption of existing uranium production out of Niger. Um, that would a, a proper disruption would depend a lot on a further escalation from here. So if it settles into a military dictatorship, then I think you can look across the border to say Burkina Faso and Mali, where by and large, those regimes have allowed business to continue existing royalty and profit generating business to continue because they need the dollars. And I think that's probably what France and Irano are counting on, that they'll be able to come to an acceptable arrangement. But I'd really be thinking they'd be pushing back any expectations they've got for some of those big development assets up there, including Imraran, which was going to be the, a very large producer for Arano in the 2030s and was expected to plug a big hole as many of their other assets deplete in production by then. So Arano will be going back to the drawing board, probably scratching their heads a little bit about how they're going to maintain their 20-year supply outlook as a result of this
0: absolutely look and i'm glad I'm kind of glad I think we did sort of intimate last time we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that there is a kind of African playbook when it comes to coups they're they are they are not necessarily entirely violent for long and it's a transfer of leaders for a dysfunctional government process as the west would see it right but it has happened, I say over 200 coups since 1950 in africa now that's that's the problem here i think that the if I, if I look at you're talking about iran obviously and um, but well, there's obviously a few players in in country like um global atomic one of my my favorites of the past um, two three years um you've got go govX in there you've got the small player uh, myriad uh, as well in there for companies like that who are dependent on raising money equity in the markets and in Glo- global's case um, debt too you've got banks who are going to be looking at the situation, trying to read it. Now, me as an ex-banker, when, when, whenever we came across situations like this, and we did, it's very nervous, we walked away, right? So I'm hoping to see um, Stephen in um, the next uh, week or so and talk to him about wh- what he think is, thinks is going on. They've made a couple of announcements. Um, but he's going to have to be upbeat because, you know, it was the next cab off the rank as far as I was concerned in terms of getting into production and and still could be if the financiers can wrap their head around this. But if they can't and they walk away because they're, they're unsure when the next queue is coming, what it means. And even if it is, even if the country is going to settle down into normal operations when it comes to to, to mining, that uncertainty for banking bankers is nervous. So that's the question I'm going to be asking Stephen about. Is like, how do you give reassurance to the banks, to the financiers, that look, we are it's 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 back to normal again? Because I think unless he can answer that, um, he's he's perhaps going to find it a very expensive kind of going forward. And I think that that kind of next cab off the rank. Um, Title um, perhaps is then under under question. So I, I hope I think he's got answers. I hope he's got answers. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the way I would look at it as a banker. But there we go. And I'm not expecting you to comment. You are a public market CEO. Perhaps a um, bit unfair for you to comment on things like that. But th- th- I think that's the kind of question the market should be looking to uh, for for sure. Um, we should we should probably um, skip on in terms of what what else has been happening.
1: Uh, so. As I said, the marketing machine is starting to uh, gain some momentum. We've seen Sprott, we've seen others starting to really pick up the uranium story. If you jump on a John Quakes, for example, and start scanning through his posts on X, as we now need to call it, no longer Twitter, but X, uh, you'll see that a lot of different banks are putting out uranium synopses. There's a lot of commentary One of the most important effects of this Niger conflict on the uranium sector is it suddenly uranium has been launched into the mainstream media conscience. And because every byline is something like Niger is important to the West for its uranium reserves. Niger is responsible for 25% of the EU's uranium. Niger is responsible for 5% of the world's uranium. And so that is a very real trigger in our sector because of the capacity for generalist investors to start investing via low risk ETFs, uh, which have already presented diversified portfolio or, of course, straight into the physical that Sprott offers. We're seeing that with the um, movement in the sput discount, it's still at a discount and we'll need to see that close before they start playing any role. But we're also seeing it with the inflow of funds from ETFs. And uh, the the other thing from a policy perspective that's been quite interesting is France, which as our audience would know, is the world's single largest nuclear fleet, the best example in humanity of decarbonizing at scale in a short period of time. Um, No renewables country has ever done this, no hydro has ever done this, but France was able to decarbonize 75% of its grid in 10 years with their nuclear build program. And they've just extended the first of their reactors from 40 years uh, to 50 years. Not dramatic, particularly in the context where the US is weighing up 80 year operating lifetimes for reactors, but a very important legislative turning point that really completes the 180 degree turn that France has taken since it started cannibalizing its incredibly effective nuclear industry in the Hollande presidency. And finally, we've seen this turnaround. It will take some time. You know, you can't neglect and actively destroy a big sector like that without some lingering problems that need to be solved. But we are seeing everything start to move in the right direction, including a far more assertive challenge of German rubbish about uh, nuclear power into the EU. So good news for France. It's another important building block. And uh, that for me is the policy highlight of the week. Fantastic. Well, there have been so
0: many over the past few months in terms of that, that, that build up, that 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 um, huge, huge weight of um, I guess, endorsement and um, positivity coming out of governments across Europe and, and, and Asia as well. Um, so good news indeed. Look, um, favourite winner of the week, Who, who's,
1: who's that being allocated to? So this would be an unusual winner of the week. It's Australia's richest woman, Gina Reinhardt, at times Australia's richest person, depending on the uh, relative fortunes of herself and uh, Andrew Forrest. So Gina Reinhart has come out during the week, capturing the imagination of just about every mainstream masthead in the country in Australia. She fronted and sponsored a, a big conference about farming and the bush, so about regional Australia. And the headline grabber was that she came out very assertively in favour of nuclear energy, telling Australia things that we know, which is it's got no real option. Now, what was interesting is, number one, it's Gina Reinhardt, who is an enormously influential and wealthy person. Number two, it starts to drive a stake into the heart of the left-leaning Labor government's withering argument against nuclear, which is it's too expensive so we'll talk some more about that just now because she's got plenty of money to start building small modular reactors if she chooses to do so but more importantly it's a message that resonated so well with the bush with regional australia an enormously influential and important voting block it's a voting block that tends to be Representative of the places where Australia will first make its progress in nuclear once the legislative ban is finally lifted, uh, both in terms of waste repositories and also the most likely areas where small modular reactors will first displace coal. Good timing because it comes at a time when the Australian Liberal Party is adopting as its official policy a. Policy to remove the legislative ban. So, we're seeing momentum in so many different ways now in Australia. And I, I've finally hit that tipping point where I think change, even in the backward waters of Australia, when it comes to nuclear and energy security, changes afoot and it's become inevitable. It's just a question of time.
0: Okay well and we'll come back to Australia at the end of this conversation if you, if you don't mind um so and you know and Gina is is um, no shrinking violet when she she, uh, she says something like, people listen don't they so um, that, that's all good news okay I mean we've got to have the 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 opposite end of the scale here a bungle of the week who are you allocating that to
1: well unfortunately we're going back to one of our favorites it's a past Hall of Fame winner of the bungle of the week. It's unfortunately Australia's energy minister. it
0: again, right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the same week, he had a business breakfast with uh, business leaders in Sydney. And um, he was told basically by the chief economist of Deutsche Bank, someone who you'd think knows a thing or two, clever guy, you'd guess, that, uh, you know, for goodness sake, don't tell us that nuclear is too expensive remove the ban and let the market sort it out. And in fact, they've had so many inbound inquiries, as Deutsche Bank and the other major banks were at the table there as well, that they said, but for the ban, we would have had progress already on financing nuclear small modular reactors in Australia. So the plea was, remove the ban, let the market sort it out. The government won't have to chip in at all. We will work out if it's viable, but you know, the implied message was, um, you know, you're the one in government, we're the one in business. Aren't we the ones who are better judged to, better able to judge capital flows? Now, the reason why Mr Bowen, Minister Bowen, got a return honour in the bungle of the week was his response. And he said, we've got a full agenda and I don't have time for distractions that's not going to work. So, I couldn't resist but tweet about this and say, well, look, fair enough. He does have a very full plate of things that don't work. But the point is that the pure arrogance of it in saying that there's a huge proportion of his constituency who are bleeding through the eyeballs at the moment when they see their power bills and he doesn't have time to even think cognitively about a solution that industry and people as clever as the... You know, the chief economist at Deutsche Bank are telling him will work. So an astonishing response, something that was picked up by the Fin Review as kind of their lead paragraph. And frankly, it's not going to age well. It's not only a bungle from our perspective, but it's a political foot in the mouth that I think is, you know, as time goes on, that foot's going to consume his knee, his hips, and he's going to bend himself backwards with those words. It,
0: it's it's just so frustrating. It's like I think I've used the phrase on the show. But it's an Irish phrase. It's like he needs he needs to get out of the way of himself, which is basically basically saying that. Well, from for me, I whinge and whine about politicians most weeks on this show because they've shown themselves through COVID. They've shown themselves in terms of the printing of money. They don't actually know much more than we do in terms of what to do, what the solutions are. And here we go. Perfect. case encapsulated in one sentence. We've got a full... Ad- so I think the question was like, why not let the market sort it out, right? So we've got no... I've got a full agenda. I don't have time for distractions that won't work. There you go. He is judge and jury. Uh, and that's not what politicians uh, should be doing. Um, yep. W- well allocated. Well, Well done, Chris Bowen. Congratulations, sir. Second second time honorary bungle of the week. Um, right, question of the week. We're going to get a bit d- deep and serious. So I didn't know this morning when I woke up I needed to ask you this, but here we go. You ready? Okay. What is linear non-threshold theory of radiation exposure? Right. Now, this is definitely,
1: okay. Sorry. definitely a change go. of pace. Rather, rather. This will require a a different level of intellectual application to what we've just heard about from the said minister. Um, But it is important. You know, this is a key reason why nuclear has played, has underplayed the role that it's needed to over time. And it's also one of the key levers that over time needs to change. So let me explain it like this. There are some substances that have a linear relationship to harm. So beer is a good example. You have one beer, you have a a very small amount of harm, you have six beers, you start experiencing a reasonable degree of harm, you have 12, and you have 18, and then it's, you know, ultimately you get to a point where you can drink yourself to death. So if you were graphing it, it would look a little bit like that, linear, Okay. Now, there are some substances that have a a non-linear relationship to harm. So an example is water. In fact, it's the opposite. Small amounts of water are extremely important to maintaining life and moderate amounts of water are important to maintaining health. However, it is a scientific fact that if you manage to hold enough water down, you could drink yourself to death. Um, And last time I checked, I think that was like 14 litres. So water can in extreme cases be dangerous, but we know that you don't go, okay, 14 litres up there is death, therefore seven litres is hospitalisation. No, seven litres and you're just off to the toilet quite often. Now, this is where one of the most important fallacies in science has been adopted by policymakers worldwide and is really hurting the nuclear industry. There is, like with beer, there is a linear, no threshold theory that defines radiation exposure. So what that actually means is we know, and there's a lot of science and evidence going back from uh, Marie Curie, Hiroshima, accidents, that a high level of radiation is extremely dangerous and it will kill you slightly less radiation is still extremely dangerous. It'll hospitalise you, it might kill you ultimately, cancers and so on. So when you've got your graph up in this area, very, very dangerous. But what the scientific community did in the 50s, essentially out of lack of data, is they therefore concluded that it's a linear relationship and therefore small amounts of radiation are also dangerous and that has never been scientifically established we all live with quite substantial amounts of radiation if you live in colorado the background radiation is very high if you eat bananas if particularly if you fly in a plane you get a lot of radiation you go for x rays all of that stuff we are surrounded by radiation so it means that the whole system the whole policy settings around the world are extremely sensitive to small amounts of radiation where there's no scientific basis for assuming that they do any harm at all. And you see that in occupational exposure levels set for various vocations, including nuclear power workers and uranium workers. But where it really has a big impact and holds our sector back is when it comes to the amounts that, for example, nuclear power plants need to spend, Uh, to protect the the general public and their own workers from very, very, very small amounts of radiation that are easy to accumulate in the natural environment in many, many places around the world. So that is the linear non-threshold theory. There should be a threshold. Um, It's one of those aspects that, generally speaking, and it's controversial because it's nuclear power, of course, and its radiation. But generally speaking, there's solid science to suggest there is a threshold. You can't apply a non-threshold um, way of thinking in the same way that there's a big threshold with something like water. Um, however, policymakers are just not interested. And this was one of the levers that was exposed very successfully during the early lawfare campaigns where um, groups like the Sierra Club friends of the earth in the in the 70s and the 80s, funded mainly by coal players, by the way, um, were so successful in slowing down the construction of nuclear power plants and dramatically increasing the cost of nuclear power plants. And that's still a lot of the hangover that we've got today. So a little bit of science for you, a little bit of economics for you, um, and you, you actually need to engage with a little bit of cerebral Engagement in order to to understand this stuff. So um I don't expect our Australian Minister Energy to be putting this up anytime soon. I was about to say, you, you expect politicians to get in get into that level of detail? No, they,
0: no. They, they, their lives are very simple. It's like, will this win me or lose me votes? Will I still have a job next week? Literally, that's decision making. And maybe we need to dumb this stuff down for them. Um, and, and sort of see if we can help them understand complex issues, uh, if they're at all interested, or indeed more fundamental issues like the the return on capital invested in in this energy transition we're going through. So, uh, good one, Professor Monroe. Well done. Well done. Um, right. Um, tweet of the week. There's there's usually some some fantastic tweets of the week weeks over the at the past few months. So, uh, who's going to get it this week?
1: Well, interesting you mentioned return on investment. This week goes to Goering and Rosenvig. The tweet is nothing spectacular, but the underlying research that they tweeted out that we can see and will be in the show notes there is exceptional, as it always is. These guys really are the king of publicly available energy analysis. Their podcasts are fantastic. And they were one of the first groups to really be able to explain the concept of energy return on energy invested eroi and you know if this is news to you sitting out there and listening to this or watching this do yourself a favor and go and pick up some of their podcasts the longer ones where they've got the chance to really lean into it and explain the concepts about all of mankind's major steps forward have come because of dramatic technology changes where the energy return increases from the energy invested. Um, but they've, they've, they're talking a bunch of different things in this publication, including some interesting um, observations on shale gas in the US. And of course, they're keen followers of the uranium sector and very, very bullish on uranium. So definitely worth a read. It's only 25 pages. It will reward you very well. And uh, you know this is a good chance for me to give them the tweet of the week. But more importantly, I suppose on behalf of all of us energy investors out there to just be so grateful that uh, Goering and Raisenvig put out such high quality information into the public domain for free. They don't keep it to themselves as LPs. They don't only provide it to their investors. They put it right out there to educate the world
0: absolutely shout out to them. They've been doing it for a long time uh it's It's good quality read if you want to be the smartest guy in the room or the most interesting person at a dinner party uh go and um go to the, go to their website. We've got a link here for you okay um and we're going to kind of finish off with as we always do with moonshots and fizzers um who are we going to talk about this week?
1: We're going to talk about a uranium explorer and it's really the definition of moonshot and fizzer isn't it the our brave cousins in the sector are at the front end of things, exploring, risking capital, taking investors' money that may never be seen again or might be multiplied many, many times. But these guys have been around the block. So I'm talking about Devex. Uh, the market code is DEV. They, they aren't a pure play uranium company. They're an explorer that has several assets. They're best known really for their chairman, Tim Goider, Billionaire mining entrepreneur. Lovely chap, Tim. He's had tremendous success, well deserved with Chalice Gold, Lion Town Lithium, and just a really solid guy who's been behind DevEx uh, ever since I can remember. I'm going to say 20 years, but it's going to be at least a decade. So they've just released some encouraging drilling results in their project in the Northern Territory. Um, which is the Narbaluk North project? So Narbaluk was a nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties mine when the British needed uranium in the Cold War era, and it produced uh, twenty four million pounds at the healthy grade of one point eight four percent. So Devex are at the very front end of seeing if they can find something like that again. However, in these latest results, it's a good solid sniff, as as investors would say about exploration results. So they achieved a, a headline drill result of 33 metres at uh, 1200 ppm. So good solid width, good grade. That's from 59 metres. So jury's still out a little bit if that would be open pit or it, it would need to be underground. Um, however, that sort of width, if it, if it had good continu- continuity, you could imagine block caving um, would get the job done there, even if it is out underground. So uh, they've uh, they've done pretty well. Previous results include 10 metres at 1.1% from 124 metres deep. So they have hit some some good high-grade material. And this uh, Alligator Rivers area of the Northern Territory, it's got many analogues to the Athabasca with a couple of key differences.
0: Right. Okay. Well, you, I know I still remember that from Vimy interview days Um I think that, well, there, there was an attempt to kind of uh, talk about it as, you know, Athabasca 20 years ago. So so who else is in the, in the district? I mean, who else is taking advantage of this?
1: Well, of course, Vimy. Uh, so that's now Deep Yellow. So Deep Yellow have got um, their Alligator River project. Um, they've got a mineral resource at that project. They're sitting at uh, 32.9 million pounds at uh, over a percent, 1.09% uranium. So that's a solid... Resource that they're already doing levels of feasibility on. The other ASX name is Alligator Energy, AGE, is its market code down here on ASX. So there's also called the Alligator Rivers Project and um, they're doing some geophysics there at the moment. Uh, But that Vimy slide that you're talking about, it's a really good slide and I'm pretty sure you can find it on uh, AGE's website as well. And it tells an interesting story, which is basically this. The Alligator Rivers or the Northern Territory in Australia had every potential to be the equivalent of the Athabasca. You know, if you look at some of the big discoveries, uh, Ranger mined 200 million pounds, um, sorry, 300 million pounds. Ranger Deeps has still got 97 million pounds at um, almost 0.3% uranium. Um, Jabaluka is sitting there undeveloped with 350. 50 million pounds at uh, 0.53% uranium. Incredible deposits that'll stand up to a MacArthur River or a Cigar Lake, you know, anytime really when you, when you think about uh, how, how broad they are and the mining is less complex than Athabasca. But uh, after those deposits were discovered and developed, then something unfortunate happened in Australia. The then Liberal government introduced the, sorry, the Labor government introduced the three mines policy in the early eighties. And that ground all exploration to a halt. They said that there will only ever be three mines in Australia of uranium. And those ones are mining already. So no point starting to find anything else. And there was a 20 year hiatus. It's only just through this recent work that we're starting to see that hiatus show some promise to be broken. Uh, but, you know, as we've learned with the Athabasca, this is a long term play. So our expectations for this part of the world playing a big role in uranium, it, it'll be over the next 10 to 20 years, assuming that this uh, funding continues to pile in. And going back to Devex, with their drilling results that they've just announced, they've followed on by saying that they'll be doing more drilling, funding more drilling there. So that's good for the sector, good for them, good for Tim Goida as chair, and uh, given the success that he's had in the industry, if they do manage to find something interesting, I think they've got a very good head start on being able to get finance for that.
0: Brilliant. Good, good, good. Oh, well, we'll check them out. It Was not not someone I was aware of. They're selling a 120 million market cap. Um, have yeah, share price been doing quite nicely for the the last three years? Um, let's not talk about a friend. Let's not forget about a friend of ours. Um, over at Boss Energy, they're also knocking it out of the park at the moment. What are you, what are you making of all of that?
1: Yeah, they've, they've, res, uh, they've announced some high-grade jewel results, really promising. Um, they're on the front foot about it, as they should, because it's showing very good prospectivity for uh, increasing the resources there, which, of course, means increasing mine life at their honeymoon well mine that they're restarting at the beginning of next year. Uh, Duncan was... Widely applauded for an excellent presentation at the Diggers and Dealers Conference, which is a great big uh, Australian mining conference that we have down here in Western Australia. So really doing a great job there. Uh, we, it's probably a joint award. Maybe we can make it a joint, a joint winner of the week and uh, with Duncan. And um, BOSS has certainly proven itself to be a moonshot in the sense that his share price has performed exceptionally well. If you, train, if you trace the share price since Duncan took over the reins uh, five or six years ago, it's been a tremendous generator of value for shareholders. So uh, an outstanding job and a lovely guy to boot, as you well know.
0: Absolutely is. Absolutely is. I, I miss our Christmas drinks shows. Um, right. We had better wrap it up there. Um, thank you very much, sir. I'll let you crack on. We'll see you soon.